This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, John Nichols will talk about the horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. That's the title of his new book about the most dangerous people in America. Also, remember when Trump declared that trans people could no longer serve in the military? Well, the ACLU is taking Trump to court, arguing that he's violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. We'll speak with the lead attorney in that case. But first, Trump messes with the Russia investigation at his own peril. Trump Watch starts right now. Whatever tricks Trump may use to remove Robert Mueller, they will not automatically shield him from accountability. That's what Elizabeth Holtzman says. She's a former member of Congress from New York who won national attention for her work on the House Judiciary Committee during Watergate. She was subsequently elected District Attorney of Kings County, which is Brooklyn. She's a Harvard Law graduate, author of the book, The Impeachment of George W. Bush, A Practical Guide for Concerned Citizens, and she's a contributor to The Nation magazine. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Elizabeth Holtzman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for saying that, John. It's a pleasure to be on your program. Well, we've worried for a long time that Trump could fire special counsel Robert Mueller or he could pardon everyone being investigated by Mueller, which would end those investigations. But now we have news that Mueller has teamed up with the attorney general of New York State, Eric Schneiderman, on their investigation into Paul Manafort and his financial transactions, and that Mueller and Schneiderman have shared information and discussed legal strategy. What is the significance of this cooperation in view of our concerns about Trump firing Mueller or pardoning his targets? Well, I think it shows several things. It shows, first of all, that Mueller is a <clears throat> excuse me a very smart. Uh, prosecutor because uh, he's saving resources or taking advantage of the work of other prosecutors. Uh, the Attorney General of New York State, Eric Schneiderman, has been doing some investigations into financial uh, activities of the Trump of Trump and and his organization, and so taking advantage of what the Attorney General has already done in his work may be extremely helpful to Mueller's investigation. But it also shows that Mueller is a very smart fellow, not only with regard to how to prosecute a case, but how to deal with the um, what you might want to call outside interference. Uh, it wasn't too long ago that President Trump said he had complete pardon power. It's not at all clear that what he meant by this, was he trying to send a signal to people who were about to testify, his son uh, and uh, some uh, other uh, campaign associates who were going to testify before Congress? Was he sending them a signal to Stonewall? Was he sending the signal that he could pardon them and they wouldn't have to tell the truth? Um, it's unclear what that was about, but there's no question that as a result of that uh, statement by um President Trump, that he had, his pardon powers were complete, that people became extremely concerned that Trump himself would issue pardons 
to himself and to all his associates in connection with the Russia investigation. So Mueller, whether he intended it or not, is sending a very strong signal to people who are subjects or targets of the investigation into possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. And the message is the president can't uh, exonerate you just by a pardon because the president's power to pardon uh, is limited to federal uh, offenses and it does not cover state offenses. So what Mueller is saying is, uh, yes, Mr. Manafort, uh, maybe President Trump will pardon you, but that's not going to get you off the hook because you can be uh, theoretically be prosecuted under state laws. And by the way, uh, looking for a state pardon, um, Trump associates would have to be looking to um, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo for a pardon, and the likelihood that he would grant one is probably zero to minus. <laughs> okay. So the... the um... The feds can prosecute crime, some crimes that state attorney generals can't, of course, Correct. Uh, starting with crimes committed outside the state of New York. What else can Mueller investigate that New York State Attorney General Snyderman cannot investigate? Well, Mueller can investigate the firing of Comey, for yeah. example. Yeah, for example. Uh, that's a federal uh, that was the firing of a federal official and uh, an obstruction of justice, potentially. Uh, that's something that Eric Schneiderman wouldn't have the jurisdiction to investigate. On the other hand, it may be that Eric Schneiderman's investigations into financial activities by Mr. Manafort could lay the basis for uh, prosecution of Mr. Manafort on state charges, but that might be sufficient to get Mr. Manafort to talk about what he knows about uh, the Trump campaign, Trump himself, and collusion with Russia. So it, even yes. even if the charges are not, even if the state charges, assuming there is a basis for them, uh, don't relate to any federal offense, they could become a basis for putting pressure on uh, Trump campaign officials to cooperate with law enforcement authorities. You uh, mentioned Trump's firing of FBI Director Comey as a potential obstruction of justice. Uh, the Wall Street Journal is uh, reporting that Trump's lawyers have filed papers uh, arguing that the president has the authority to hire and fire, and therefore it could not be an obstruction of justice for the president to fire the director of the FBI. Uh, you're, a, you're a former uh, prosecutor. Could that be correct? Well, I think uh, the intent is going to be critical in that matter. I mean, an obstruction of justice requires a corrupt intent, and if the purpose of the firing is to stop an investigation, then that Corrupt intent may well exist, and that may be a basis for the prosecution. In addition, and this is very important, the, even though the president may have the full authority to hire and fire anybody, if he's doing it for the purpose of obstructing an investigation, that becomes an impeachable offense. Remember, Richard, one of the grounds for the impeachment of Richard Nixon, the vote for impeachment by the House Judiciary Committee, was his was Nixon's firing or causing the firing of the special prosecutor yeah. Archibald Cox, 
who was closing in on him, wanted White House tapes that could reveal whether Nixon himself was involved in the cover-up. So, yes, Mr. Nixon may have had full authority, constitutional authority. I'm not conceding that, but let's even assume he did. There's no, that was a basis for his, uh, the vote for impeachment. So, you know, just uh, claiming that the president has constitutional powers to act doesn't mean that his use of those powers can't be an abuse of power. And uh, firing Comey in order to stop an investigation, if it's done for that purpose, could be the basis of an impeachment as well as the basis of a prosecution. Well, thank you for taking us back to the House Judiciary Committee, which, of course, you were a key member of that committee when it drafted articles of impeachment against Nixon. The the articles of impeachment covered uh, obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and contempt of Congress. I wonder if you have any uh, advice or wisdom to offer to our current House Judiciary Committee. Well, uh, I think the House Judiciary Committee has a major responsibility to protect the country uh, from uh, the destruction of its democratic and constitutional system. That's what impeachment is about. The framers of the Constitution... They may not have known names of the presidents who would abuse power, but they knew it could happen because they were wise people and they'd seen how monarchs and other executives had abused power. So they created an impeachment process to protect our democracy. And that's really what's at stake when a president, as uh, we are seeing to some extent now with Mr. Trump, when a president takes the law into his own hands, and puts himself above the rule of law. We cannot have a president decide whether, uh, who is going to investigate him and whether or not he's, going to, he's committed a crime. There is a rule of law. Whether you're president of the United States or a beggar on the street, there's a rule of law that applies to everyone equally. Uh, and the minute we abandon that, we're on the way, on the way to dictatorship, fascism, and loss of our basic freedoms. So, the, the House Judiciary Committee. There was a very interesting article in a kind of um, middle of the road blog called Lawfare uh, just a few days ago, saying that the House Judiciary Committee should commence impeachment proceedings or a pr- impeachment inquiry because of the abuses of power that have taken place. Uh, not just the abuse with regard to uh, the Russia investigation, but the abuse of power with respect to um, the pardon of um, uh, Sheriff Arpaio. And uh, all of these things should be looked at, but I, I just want to bring people's memory, if they, if they were alive during Watergate, or uh, cause them to reflect on this point, that impeachment took place in the end uh, not because Congress said we've got to remove the president, because the, but because the American people said enough is enough, and we're not a banana republic, and the president can't decide who's going to prosecute him, and the president is not above the law. And that's what forced Congress to act. So you have to have egregious acts by a president. We have some very egregious acts here. And you have to have the American people saying this is not tolerable in a democracy. And the minute you have those two things... Um, uh, president needs to be held accountable, and the House Judiciary Committee needs to be alert to that. 
you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Elizabeth Holtzman. She served on the House Water, the House Watergate, the House Judiciary Committee that drafted the Watergate articles of uh, impeachment, and she uh, recalled that in a recent article for the Nation magazine. Well, the first offense that uh, Trump has seems to have committed that aligns with the House Judiciary Committee's. Um, Articles of impeachment against Nixon is obstruction of justice. It's interesting that Nixon, Nixon knew knew what obstruction of justice was. He talked about it in the White House tapes. He was a lawyer. He uh, he often lectured his staff uh, about what obstruction of justice was, not in connection with Watergate, but recalling his own days uh, much before in the House when when. He proudly said they got accused spy Alger Hiss not on espionage charges, but on perjury. Uh, it seems like Trump has no understanding of what obstruction of justice is. Do you, or do you think that's going too far? Well, I think the important thing to realize, at least in an imp- if we're talking about impeachment, is that the House Judiciary Committee, while the article, uh, the first article of impeachment kind of sounded like an obstruction of justice charge, the House Judiciary Committee ruled, decided, that you didn't have to have the elements of a crime that to um, base an impeachment charge. So it's not a prosecution in a technical sense, but it's, it's similar to an obstruction of justice charge because what the first article of impeachment was was the cover-up of the criminal act, which was the break-in at the Watergate Hotel, in order to uh, affect the election, very similar to the charges regarding the Russia uh, investigation. Yes. The Russia <laughs> inquiry involves um, an, an attempt to, by Russia, confirmed by 17, all the uh, U.S. intelligence agencies, an effort by Russia to interfere in our election process and to affect the outcome. Now, nothing could be more serious than destroying our democratic right to vote, and that's apparently what the Russians were trying to do. We still don't know how much they succeeded in doing that or in affecting the outcome of the race. So the the issue of, of Trump, campaign's potential meddling with the collusion with the Russians in this meddling really resonates with Watergate in the sense that both if they if they occurred both were efforts to undermine our democracy in yes. the course of an election so uh, these are very serious charges and um we 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 don't have to get caught up into whether there's a particular crime that took place in in, in the first article of impeachment which dealt with the cover-up. Nixon was held responsible for a whole variety of actions. The firing of the special prosecutor, urging his aides to commit perjury before the Senate, um, kind of coaxing and beguiling top Justice Department, a top Justice Department prosecutor so that he would give information about the nature of the investigation that was being conducted so Nixon could then turn around and warn witnesses about it. So uh, offering pardons to people to keep their mouths shut, uh, offering bribes to the burglars to keep their mouths shut. So the, it, the, the so-called obstruction of justice charge was really the cover-up, the Watergate cover-up, and it covered many, many separate charges. 
Um, so we can't get caught up in one specific small uh, detail. What is an obstruction of justice? What we need to know is whether President Trump is attempting to cover up the investigation that is being carried out and that has to be carried out into whether the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians in undermining our election. And if there's evidence that that's the case, then and uh, that and that the president is trying to stop that investigation, there is substantial evidence that that seems to be the case. Then he could well be committing an impeachable offense, whether you call it obstruction of justice or not. Doesn't matter from an impeachment point of view. May matter from a prosecution point of view, but from an impeachment point of view, it doesn't matter. And what do you think are as, as Shakespeare said, a rose by any name smells <laughs> sweet. And so, uh, misconduct of that kind, cover up, um, you know, can be a basis for impeachment, no matter what shape it takes. Always glad to have Shakespeare mentioned on the radio here. Um, what do you think are are the mo- of course that Robert Mueller's investigation is just you know getting started and we don't know much about what he has found. But what what to you are the most important elements that could lead to uh, impeachable offenses here? Obviously, firing of Comey looks like an obstruction of justice, especially since he said in his interview with Lester Holt that it was about the Russia thing. Uh, and beyond that, what what else do you think, uh, what, what's at the top of the list of what are the most significant, the most dangerous things that Trump has done to endanger our democracy? Well, for example, um, misleading the American people about the nature of his son's uh, meeting yes. with the Russians, uh, rather than making a clean breast of it and telling what happened, he played a key role in trying to mislead the American people. I think uh, the efforts to stymie the Mueller investigation are also very serious. For example, the efforts and we don't know whether this is really where it's speculative, uh, really what was behind, uh, what was in Trump's mind. But all the attacks on, on Attorney General Sessions, were those attacks designed to get Sessions to resign and allow Trump to appoint uh, a new Attorney General who could remove Mueller? We don't know that, but that needs to be looked at because... That could be grounds for um, uh, possible obstruction of justice or impeachment. So those are, I would say, very serious things. That um, and the attacks on Mueller himself, you know, saying that the Russia investigation is a hoax, it's fake news. I mean, you have one of the most highly respected law enforcement officials in the country who's assembled a team of highly respected prosecutors to look into this and to call it a fake, a hoax, fake news, um, a witch hunt, and so forth, uh, it just flies in the face of reality and is an attempt to um, attempt to undermine the investigation, which is not what a president should be doing. And he's treading on very dangerous grounds, Mr. Trump, by emulating Richard Nixon. Elizabeth Holtzman, you can read her article, Trump Messes with the Russia Investigation at His Own Peril at TheNation.com. Elizabeth Holtzman, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Ciao.
I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Next up, Trump versus trans soldiers and sailors. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. You can follow us on uh, Twitter and check out our Instagram page. Later in this hour, John Nichols talks about the most dangerous people in America. A hint, they work for the man in the White House. But first, Trump does terrible things every day, so which makes it hard to focus. But right now we want to go back a few days and focus on his effort to ban military service by trans individuals. He's run into some problems with that, starting with the ACLU, which is telling the courts that is unconstitutional. For that story, we turn to Chase Strangio. He's a staff attorney with the ACLU's LGBT and AIDS project. Chase has particular expertise on the treatment of transgender and gender non-conforming people in police custody, jails, and prisons, and he was Chelsea Manning's lawyer. Chase Strangio, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, to bring us up to date, Trump has been trying to reverse Obama's policy. Uh, First, there were the tweets about we don't want trans people in the military. The generals ignored those. Then there was a policy statement barring enlistment by transgender individuals, prohibiting coverage for certain critical medical procedures, and banning those currently in the military from serving. But, and this turns out to be quite a big but, Trump gave the defense secretary, former general Jim Mattis, discretion to decide the status of transgender people who are already serving. Uh, We've had some recent news about what uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis is going to do with that. What what did he say? Well, I think first it's important to clarify that this is not just the current president reversing Obama. It's the current president reversing years of study by the Department of Defense yes. uh, under Ash Carter and, and prior to that. And they concluded last year that uh, allowing transgender individuals to serve openly in the military, many of whom had been doing so in silence for decades, was not only cost-effective, but was critical for national security and military readiness. So Trump, on a, on a whim, seemed with his tweets, unbeknownst to the defense secretary at the time who was on vacation, decided to uh, reverse all of that study that the Defense Department had concluded was in the interest of uh, our national security and military. The directive from the president that came out last Friday does give some discretion to the Secretary of Defense, though I actually read it differently um, in that it gives him discretion to figure out how uh, to um, determine the nature of current of current service members' separation, um, but I don't think that Mattis has the ability to retain transgender individuals who are out as trans 
indefinitely. And even his statement, which I think was wildly misreported as um, sort of freezing the ban, was really just an indication that he is implementing the ban in accordance with the directive um, and will come back to the president with some guidelines. Now, he does, you know, potentially in the future uh, have the ability to try to defy the president and could say, no, we're keeping all of these service members and it's in the interest of national security. And then we could see a real conflict between, um, you know, the defense secretary and the president. I don't think we're there yet. And we already know people are being significantly harmed, which is why we have taken the president um, and the Department of Defense to court. Well, before we get to the lawsuit, which is our real interest here, I I just want to go over Mattis's um, statement. Maybe I'm being too uh, Pollyanna about this, but he said he's going to appoint a uh, a expert panel, as you say, to determine the best way to implement President Trump's order. But he said that the guidelines for his expert panel would evaluate the issues of trans individuals in the service in relation to military readiness, lethality, and unit cohesion, that's a quote, while also following legal and budgetary constraints. Now, as you have said, the Defense Department concluded after years of study that there is no problem with military readiness, lethality, or unit cohesion with service by trans individuals, and that it helps the budgetary constraints to keep them in. So seems to me, again, maybe I'm being too Pollyanna about this, that he's going to conclude that according to their criteria, uh, there's, no need for, uh, there's no need for this order. What, am I going too far with this? Well, I mean, I, you know, listen, I, John, I would like you to be, to be correct, and, and <laughs> yes. that would be great. I worry in the current political climate, and I do believe that Mattis has serious concerns, rightfully so, with the president, including with respect to this directive, that this, that this new uh, study that they're, that they're um, bringing together, which is completely unnecessary given that there has already been years of study, right. is designed to reverse engineer a policy that's in the service of what the president wants. Uh-huh. Um, so I am not optimistic, because why pull together a, a commission when a commission was just pulled together with the same very types of experts reaching the same conclusions? Um, so I worry that this is just a cover uh, for what the president hopes to accomplish here. And even if uh, individuals are able to be retained under some you know, findings from the defense secretary, they will be without access to health care that's critical, and they'll be barred from enlistment, which applies both to uh, military professional schools like officer candidate schools, so people won't be able to promote in certain ways, nor will they be able to re-enlist when their contracts run. So it's a sort of second-class uh, service that they would be subjected to even if they're allowed to stay in. Okay, you've convinced me. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the lawsuit. Trump made his announcement last Friday. When did the ACLU file its lawsuit? Uh, we filed our lawsuit around nine fifteen on Monday morning. <laughs> so that was um, that was fast work. And what? Tell us about the lawsuit. Uh, so the lawsuit was filed on behalf of six currently serving uh, individuals in the armed forces, as well as the ACLU of Maryland. Um, and we're just making, I think, what is a very simple point that. Uh, the president's new directive violates constitutional guarantees of equal protection and due process and is not supported by any rational government justification, particularly given that the government has already disputed and established the opposite of what the president has put forth as the justifications here. And uh, 
what what happens now with the lawsuit? When is this going to be heard, and when when will you be arguing, and when would you like to to start the resolution of this? Well, obviously, you know, people are being harmed immediately, so we want to move this as quickly as possible. Yes. We will uh, file for um, preliminary relief very soon in the coming weeks um, as we continue to get uh, the lawsuit moving. And we will, uh, you know, our, our goal is to ensure that people's lives and their careers and the medical care that they're entitled to are not put on hold any more than they already have. Uh, so hopefully, you know, within the next couple of months, this will be heard. Um, there are two other lawsuits pending. I expect there to be more. Uh, this is a, you know, a real egregious policy. It would be under any circumstances, but the fact that just last year, the Defense Department told transgender service members that they could come out and safely uh, be open as trans in their units, serve openly. Uh, for their countries and is now retracting all of that, it just makes it so, so unfair and so hurtful to the individuals who are putting their lives on the, on the line every day for our country. Uh, we've only got a couple minutes left here. You have a brother who's a platoon leader in the 82nd Airborne who has deployed to Afghanistan. And in your uh, blog post at the ACLU website, you have a great quote from something he wrote at the time of President Trump's initial tweets. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, my brother served uh, for many years in the military. He deployed to Afghanistan. Um, he's very familiar with military policy and military readiness, and not unlike uh, Senator Duckworth, who also had a very powerful statement. Um, people who are serving uh, have a real understanding of what matters when you're serving, and it's not uh, the person's identity. It's not uh, the person's uh, race. It's the, really the reality is what matters is the person's willingness to stand by uh, their fellow service members, um, and that it is clear to anyone who's devoted to um, to the military and what it stands for, that kicking people out because of who they are does nothing to serve uh, the larger goals of the military. And I think we're going we're gonna to be successful in court because that seems to be an obvious principle. And what we're looking at here from the president is just plain, baseless animus um, and bigotry. And that is not something the Constitution permits. How many uh, trans people are currently serving in the military? I read that the Rand Corporation says 6,600 transgender troops are on active duty, and there are more than 4,100 in the reserves. Do you think that's, that's right? I think we're, you know, I think the current estimates are between 10 and 15,000 on active duty and in the reserves. I am guessing it's higher because those numbers are largely taken from before the open service directive when people had a real incentive not to identify themselves. Um, and then in general, when counting trans people, because of the high rates of discrimination, people are unwilling to identify themselves as trans or live openly as trans. Uh, so trans people generally, we know from the numbers of veterans, uh, go into military service more than other people. I'm guessing the numbers are high. Um, and even if they're incredibly low, uh, even if it's just a few hundred people, which we know it's more than that, uh, certainly um, after we've invested in many cases millions of dollars and people have devoted their lives and careers um, to the armed forces, the idea of kicking them out because of who they are in a series of tweets and then a, a poorly thought out directive um, is just really unthinkable, uh, and I just feel honored to stand with our clients and try to get this taken down as soon as possible. We do have another minute here. I, I just want to ask you about your work with Chelsea uh, Manning. Uh, she has the greatest Twitter feed. It's always so, so great to see her tweets. Uh, tell us what it's like to have her as a client. 
Well, thankfully, she's not really my client anymore because yeah. she's out of prison. And I, uh, I just, I have to say, she's an incredibly inspiring, resilient person, like so many of the people that I represent. And I am just so uh, proud to see her having survived unthinkable uh, abuses during her years in custody and, and, and done so much for our country and now have the wit and, and lightheartedness to uh, take on the relentless criticism that she receives. Um, she truly is an incredibly kind, empathetic person, uh, and her Twitter feed is well worth the follow um, for the laugh and just to see someone who's genuinely uh, enjoying life after having survived so much. Chase Strangio, he's staff attorney with the ACLU, suing Trump over equal protection for trans individuals serving in the military. Chase, thank you so much for your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, the most dangerous people in the world. We'll speak with John Nichols, who will name names. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Trump Watch Podcast. Uh, coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening Jerry quickly. But first, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. That's the title of John Nichols' new guide to the most dangerous people in America. They all work for the man in the White House. John, of course, is national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine and a frequent guest here. We reached him today, I believe, in our nation's capital, where he's been talking about his new book at places like the legendary Politics and Prose Bookstore. John, welcome back, and congratulations on the new book. Thank you, John. It's, it's an honor to be with you, and it's a delight to be out talking about the book. Uh, am I right that you're in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital right now? Yeah, I'm I'm underground, you know, kind of hiding out. <laughs> the, uh, got the curtains down and stuff. I think uh, they call this the dog the dog days in Washington. Is that yeah, the, yeah, most of them are at the beach or you know with Trump wherever he's golfing. But uh, um, you know, I haven't been so kind to him, so I want to be a little careful. <laughs> okay. Well, one of the worst people uh, in your new book was in the news today. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who's working with Trump on the terrific new tax cuts he announced last night, which are going to help all of us by unleashing the American economy and freeing ordinary people from the burden of high taxes. Before we talk about who Steven Mnuchin is, fill us in exactly on how Trump and Mnuchin are going to help ordinary people. Well, they're going to free them from a tiny bit of taxes if any at all, right? Um, but because they're going to do massive tax cuts for the super-rich and for corporations and for the children of the super-rich and all sorts of other folks, uh, and because this, this tax cut scheme comes in combination with a budget proposal to gut out domestic programs and move the money over to the Pentagon, um, I, I think that the, the best way to describe this is with, with a little more clarity 
is to say that they're going to free the American people from having a functional government ah. uh, that will do any good at all for them. Mm. Well, uh, I'm starting to feel bad here. Uh, we, we, we want to turn to your, your book, uh, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. You have a chapter on Stephen Mnuchin. For those of us who can't quite keep all these different players straight, who is Stephen Mnuchin and what are his qualifications to serve as Secretary of the Treasury? Well, the Treasury oversees a lot of money, and he's a really rich guy. Okay. So guess, you know, that, that sums it up. Um, and, you know, he made his money the old-fashioned way, you know, scrappily uh, working his way up from one position to another within Goldman Sachs. Ah, I've heard of him. Um, yeah, he's a Goldman Sachs rich guy. Uh, and he made so much money at Goldman Sachs uh, that he went out on his own and, much like Stephen Bannon, uh, moved to Hollywood because apparently if you make an incredible amount of money – you know, kind of gaming the economic system, you think you can make movies. Um, and he became a relatively successful Hollywood producer, uh, much like Donald Trump, kind of playing uh, both sides, the money side of things and also uh, the entertainment side, and moved around in those circles for quite a while. At the same time, he uh, did, did find a few minutes to kind of get into um, sort of like the whole mortgage area and all the the, uh, you know, kind of financial dealings uh, for ordinary people world where they're still, I think, if I'm correct, investigating uh, all that in Ohio. Mm. Um, uh, he was involved in some incredibly shady uh, operations, which were brought up during his, his hearing uh, before the, the Senate committee that does oversight on these things. And um, he had an incredible memory lapse. <laughs> it can happen. It can happen. Yeah. Hey, look, I mean, it, this guy shouldn't be anywhere near um, our money. Uh, he has a terrible, terrible track record uh, as, you know, can only be called a, a you know, kind of a, a grifter, a wheeler-dealer kind of character who sweeps in, finds ways to make a lot of money for himself, uh, benefit himself tremendously. Um, and uh, the evidence is, I know we got to get into the specifics of some of the governing, but the evidence is uh, from recent weeks that um, he has a little bit of trouble, he and his wife, have a little bit of trouble distinguishing between um, what's supposed to be public uh, transportation and, and, and their own sort of corporate jet kind of thing. Because mm. uh, I think you're familiar with the trip down to Fort Knox. Ah, uh, Yes. I also want to talk about another one of the horsemen of the Trumpocalypse in the news today, and that's of Vice President Mike Pence. When I was driving into the studio, they were playing a report that Mike Pence is in Corpus Christi, that today Mike Pence put on work gloves and pitched in with the cleanup. Uh, I'm quoting uh, MSNBC here. Uh, and they've posted photos and tweets of Pence clearing down trees from roadways. What a great guy. Tell us about Mike Pence. Well, first off, more power to him. Um, I'm a critic of this administration. I wrote this book because I believe that President Trump is not in, in and of himself able to bring on the Trumpocalypse, at least we hope not but that he has empowered a tremendous number of people 
who really can do uh, damage that's, that's almost immeasurable. But not to say that occasionally they, they might do something useful, and I'm, I can't think of a more useful purpose to put Mike Pence to than clearing away weeds okay. or, or whatever he's doing. It was um, tree branches, but, I believe. Three branches is great. I mm. think that's exactly where I'd like to see him. Yeah. Uh, because I can tell you this. If you put him anywhere near power, um, what he seeks to do is privatize. He's a huge, huge advocate for privatization, uh, even roads, uh, to gut things out. He's militantly anti-labor. But this is, there's one other thing about him that, that makes him, and I know this is a hard thing to imagine, uh, even more troubling than Donald Trump is when it comes to media issues. Because when it, Mike Pence was governor of Indiana, he, the, the big daily newspaper there is the Indianapolis Star. It, it's not a liberal paper. It's a historically pretty conservative paper. And, and frankly, the media in Indiana is not exactly um, the nation magazine. But um, Pence was so upset with the media. He had come out of being a right-wing talk radio guy uh, who used to follow Limbaugh on radio uh, for years. And, uh, and really, is a Limbaugh defender. Like, just as every, the worst things that Limbaugh's done, Pence has defended. But he got so upset, he actually tried to set up a, a government-run news service that would produce news uh, about how great a governor Mike Pence was. Amazing. And it was so, I know, it was so controversial that even conservatives said, you know, this is sounding just a little bit too, too much like a one-party state, if mm. you get what I mean. Yes. And, um, and so just as Trump has, you know, incredible uh, disconnect from basic premises of, of democracy, basic premises of uh, the First Amendment, Pence is, is in many ways even worse and uh, where that gets to its ugliest, I mean, the, the media stuff is tr- deeply troubling. Where it gets to its ugliest, of course, and I recount a lot of this in, in the book, is his visceral uh, um, anti-gay activities. And he's, he, to a greater extent than an awfully lot of people in this administration, uh, he has uh, tried to legitimize and advance uh, some of the worst barriers to LGBTQ rights. Uh, in the country, and and um, and this is not something he did 25 years ago or 20 years ago. This is something he did a couple years ago as as governor of Indiana. So much so that it brought um, national outcry and the threats of boycotts of the state because it was so far right in its approach. Where if you just tuned in, we're speaking with John Nichols about his new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, just published this week, I believe. Am I right about that? The pub date is this week. It was published. It was published on Tuesday. Hey, and we've we've had an incredible ride with it because um, because it does profile people like Elaine Chow uh, at the Department of Transportation and Scott Pruitt at the EPA, people who, as we've seen, the horrors of what's happened in. Uh, Houston, along the Texas coast, uh, people who have been at, at the forefront of climate deni- climate change denial, and literally, you know, shifting policies in in recent weeks, yeah. shifting policies in ways that make it harder uh, for to respond to uh, some of the crises that that we've had. Um, and so, I've ended up, in addition to talking about the book, 
talking uh, a great deal about the real-time realities of having some of these people in positions of tremendous authority at a time of national emergency. Uh, John Nichols, you mentioned Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chao. She's also in the news today. She traveled to Texas with Mike Pence, and she announced, quote, I have mobilized the Department of Transportation to provide whatever assistance Texas requires to restore the state's transportation systems, close quote. If you read the fine print, it says she's allocating $25 million to repair the roads and bridges of Texas. Will $25 million do the job? Of course not. <laughs> um, and when Elaine Chow says she's going to fix something, Run screaming from the room. <laughs> I think Alan uh, Minsky is about to her, do that. Oh boy! Her track record, her track record. When she ran the Department of Labor, um, she was the subject of investigations, inquiries, complaints, uh, because she took a, a very functional federal department, uh, not one that actually could have been improved in a lot of ways, but she made it so much worse that uh, she faced harsh criticism for undermining wage and hour protections for some of the hardest-working and and most disenfranchised people in America. I mean, she's like the opposite of the $15 an hour wage. And um, for undermining mine safety investigations, which is really about literally people's lives. And now she's over at the Department of Transportation. and, And I cannot begin to emphasize how much she is in the pocket of big business. And if she says she's going to cut $25 million loose, she's going to cut $25 million loose to give it to corporations, which are going to somehow, you know, come out ahead on this thing. Mm. That's my bet. And, and I will emphasize that just two weeks ago, as I kind of referenced before, and this is a very big deal, uh, President Obama did a lot of stuff on climate change. He actually he was very thoughtful. There's one thing he did that conservatives and liberals thought was a pretty good idea. They created what was called the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. Mm -hmm. And what it said was that when the United States government puts money into new infrastructure, new roads, new bridges, hospitals, you know, whatever it's putting money into, that they have to be built with an understanding of climate science, of what's going on right now, the reality that, you know, warming oceans and changing climate has an impact that can lead, so many scientists say, to greater flood surges, to or greater storm surges, to flooding, you know, to much more severe storms and much greater threats to infrastructure. And so what Obama said is if we're going to spend billions of dollars to help build infrastructure, it's got to be built to withstand what we know is happening now and what we science tells us is coming. Well, two weeks ago, Elaine Chow was front and center for reversing that standard. They actually canceled it out Mm. so that now we no longer have a federal commitment to build infrastructure that will last or survive through the kinds of storms that we're seeing. This is madness. It It isn't conservative. It's not fiscal conservatism. It's not fiscal responsibility. This is crony capitalism at its worst because Elaine Chow is so deferent to contractors and real estate interests and developers like Donald Trump, that she, the notion of having her in charge of a $1 trillion infrastructure program is simply terrifying. And she hardly ever gets covered. And that's really the point of this book, 
is to say, yeah, I know that Donald Trump is a terrible player. You've got a show about what a bad player he is, and, I, and that's important. This show is so valuable. That's why people should, whether they want my book or not, I hope they do, but they should call in and support this, this project because you're doing so much to shed light on, on what this administration is doing. But what I really want to emphasize is that Trump is, by and large, an entertainer, a scary, often horrible entertainer who divides us and who says the awful things. But every time he's out there tweeting or saying something obnoxious, there are dozens of people coming in that same morning and implementing policies and changing the future of this country. And we have to expand our focus, not just look at Donald Trump. We have to look at all of the horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, because if we're not watching them, they really will usher in the Trumpocalypse. And what the Trumpocalypse is, is an America that mm-hmm. there's no resemblance to anything that we've understood this country to be or to anything that we think it should be. Right. The book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America. The author is John Nichols. John, thanks for this book. Congratulations on getting it out this week, and thanks for talking with us today on KPFK. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Elizabeth Holtzman, talked about Trump's crimes and Robert Mueller's investigations. And Chase Strangio talked about the ACLU's lawsuit against Trump for denying trans individuals serving in the military equal protection. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer today, Jonas Oppenheim. Thanks to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Stay tuned for uh, This Is Happening, Jerry Quickly, coming up at four tonight on KPFK. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening, and thanks for calling 818-985-5735.